This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Gregori, we walk the path of suns and discuss the indigo sun. And then, with Embrace the Black Cube, we talk about Monty Cook's third design diary. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. This time, we're talking about the fourth sun on the Path of Suns, the Indigo Sun. So, the Indigo Sun is going to be an important sun, because this is the real world. This is, like, the most, I guess, the most real of the suns that we have to deal with. Uh, We know that gray is shadow, and that'll be the sun we talk about next time. And Gray is where the Vizlay uh, escaped to in order to avoid the, the horrors of the war that they were, they were part of. Uh, and they are going to be coming back to Indigo. And I'm guessing that this is where we're going to be starting most campaigns in Invisible Sun. Uh, on the Indigo Sun. In the Indigo Realm. So, um, what do you know about... Indigo. What's what's one of the big important things about Indigo, Scott? Well, it is the actuality, or it is the most actual, realist part of the actuality. So when people think about the actuality itself, uh, the, the the comments suggest they're usually thinking of the Indigo Sun. Uh, my bet is that most gameplay will take place in the Indigo Sun, and that what we've seen for art is mostly reflective of the the indigo sun itself, or the people who live uh, under it, uh, and uh, Seterine and the other major locations uh, within this sun. Yeah, I'm thinking that this is going to be this is this is going to be like the uh, not the beyond, but uh, the steadfast for Numenera. Like this is where civilization is. This is where most things happen. And a lot of that is going to be in Saturine. Uh, however, Indigo is described as a boundless land that uh, Saturine is at the center of. And Saturine is the largest city in Indigo. So there are other uh, bastions of civilization that you can find on this realm, which perhaps you would be moving uh, characters, like your characters might be having adventures that take them out into the other parts of Indigo. Uh, but I think that uh, Saturine is going to be, you know, a very important piece of what Invisible Sun is going to be about. Uh, <clears throat> when we read about uh, some of the playtest reports that they've been posting, uh, I know Shauna and Bruce, and I think Sean have posted snippets here and there on Twitter uh, about how their neighborhoods are cool and how they're getting eaten by houses. This all sounds like Saturine specific stuff. It's happening. It's probably happening in a city and it's probably happening 
uh, in the city that the Vizlay live in, which is Saturine, and specifically Fartown is their district. Um, but let's back up just a, just a second. Uh, so Indigo is also described as uh, the truth, the real world of thoughts and ideas. Uh, but I found the definition of what the truth is to be a little bit interesting. Uh, and it also harkens back to uh, a famous quote, which is, um, so the, the truth here is immovable and unchangeable. Uh, however, the truth is relative on indigo, which I guess another way of putting that would be it's true from a certain point of view. So, like, what's truth going to be like on indigo? Are we, are you going to have rules and uh, laws of nature that you're going to be following here? Or is this part of surrealism that you just kind of take all that and throw it out the window and whatever it is that you're defining is what the truth is? Yeah, I, I was reminded of a famous kind of philosophical distinction between uh, schools of thought that argue that existence precedes essence and or essence precedes existence, which sounds very strange and uh, arcane. A little bit. <laughs> what, what I get from the indigo sun is that it is a realm where essence, the idea behind a thing, its identity, what makes that thing the thing, exists before its raw physical existence in our world. So it's like Plato's forms. These are the, the essences of objects, of people, of concepts that represent the truest form of truth. What we see in our world, which we'll later get to as the gray, is just a reflection of these truths and thus is less true in some ways. It's less reflective of that eternal, essential truth. It is mere earthly existence. Mm -hmm. uh, and that this game, especially in the Indigo Sun, privileges the essence as the capital T truth and the reflection of that truth in, in the gray, our world, as being a subjective, limited reflection of that uh, capital T truth. So... The essences are true. The reflections are simply true from a perspective. So are you suggesting that maybe some of these reflections are something that we would see in the gray? I think so. I think that, or, and I don't know how much of it we'll see, whether there's a one-to-one mm -hmm. -one correspondence, uh, but we might see core concepts that are represented in the indigo, and those might be the capital T eternal truths of the of the world and of the indigo sun but that it might be the reflections may be fractured and subjective as they work their way into the gray into in some sense our part of the actuality uh, as a result what we see in our world is just lowercase t truth a reflective subjective truth uh, but Playing in the, the indigo sun is playing with the direct material of capital T truth and in the indigo sun, everything there is going to be more magnified. So beauty is going to be more beautiful and horrificness is going to be, you know, terrible and horrifying to degrees you couldn't even imagine. So I guess as an example, let's go with something horrific. Um, hey, the exorcist is pretty horrific, right? Absolutely. And I, I believe uh, in terms of timeliness, we just actually lost William Peter Blatty. Oh, yeah, so that's right. It's I timely. Uh, yeah, and if you don't know who that is, he was the, was he the author of the book? 
or the screenplay? He was the author of the book. I believe he, he had a lot of involvement in the first and third movies. And I, so I don't know if it was actually the screenplay writer, uh, but he may well have been. I know he was at least that level of involved. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me if he was also the screenwriter for the for the movie. Uh, my little brother would be really disappointed that I don't know that. Um, so anyhow, uh, The Exorcist is something that exists in our world, and it's well established that our world is just a, a reflection of reality. It's a shadow of reality. So, do you think perhaps it might be possible that The Exorcist is? simply a less horrific representation of evil and uh, demon, demonology or devils that you might find in Indigo. It could be. So Pazuzu might be uh, a Vizlai or a demon from the actuality and that uh, one of the ways that that is expressed in our world is through something like possession. Oh, man. Pazuzu as a Vizlay sounds really great. Uh, yeah, I was thinking, yeah, Pazuzu would be a demon or a devil uh, over in the actuality. But actually, Pazuzu as a Vizlay would be fantastic. That would be so much more interesting than just saying, oh, yeah, it's definitely a demon. And all I could think of is the professor from Futurama screaming, Pazuzu! <laughs> kind of takes ah. the bite out of the exorcist a little bit. Just, Just a little bit. Uh, so I, I'm getting back on track here. My notes are all messed up. Um, so hopefully that, that edit you made where my entire network died is, uh, not so noticeable. It'll be completely invisible. Nothing to see here. Yeah. A a good secret to have. Um, however, I, I went to the wrong notes and I was reading about goetics and that's, that's not what we're recording here, even though we're talking about demons. Um, no, we're talking about, um, Indigo and Saturine. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Saturine. But I think that uh, we might have a lot more to say about Saturine in another episode. Uh, because Saturine is going to be a really big part of Invisible Sun. Uh, so I'm looking at Saturine. And, well, I'll get to it in just a second. But Saturine is the largest city in the realm of Indigo. It's in the very center. Uh, it's referred to as the Glistening City or the City of Notions. Uh, which sort of falls in line with, you know, this is the realm of thoughts and ideas. Uh, but here, the the largest city in Indigo is Saturn, and it was founded thousands of years ago as a trading hub uh, for some interesting stuff. Uh, rather than being uh, an agricultural center, this was a trading hub for thoughts, ideas, sensations, and feelings that were created in the emotion mills of the unfathomable archipelago. So... Do you think those are just interesting names that uh, Monty put together and said, this sounds neat? Or do you think there was more to it when that sentence got put together? I want to believe there's a grand plan, <laughs> but it it reads like really cool words. And that's okay with me <laughs> because I like having really cool words to riff on later. And the, yeah. the phrase emotion mills, for example, uh, got me thinking like, OK, if if a mill grinds things down into a digestible component, what is the input material for the emotion mills or a phys- what's the physical 
representation of emotion. What does it mean to grind emotion down to a bit? And what do you use the small bits for? So even if it's just a few phrases that are kind of cool, uh, they're cool enough that I'm not too concerned about whether there's a 10-page spec document somewhere on uh, Monty's computer as to what is going on with this with the emotion mills. Yeah, I'm I'm not terribly concerned. I, I think it was probably cool words. Um, however, I mean we're talking about a surreal a surreal setting. So, what sort of thing would you be trading? Like, what would you be putting together a city around? It's got to be something a little bit more interesting than just, you know, your standard fantasy uh, market. So, hey, we're gonna we're gonna trade in ideas. We're gonna trade in sensations. Hey, do you want to experience true love? Hey, no problem. We've got that. We put it together at the emotion mills. You don't want to know like how we actually did that. Um, if you want, if you want something that's a little bit uh easier to deal with like you can go down and get your free range true love uh it's going to cost you a lot more but hey if you just want true love and you're not concerned about it being cooped up all day like you know this is what you want to get and some visley may specialize in uh going to find your your artisanal true love uh in the gray or wherever it may be that has some specific flavor to it that people want uh, it, it also reminds me a bit, I don't think I've mentioned this before, of the economy in Wraith the Oblivion. Uh, no, we haven't talked about that. Where the uh, currency and all the material is out of the very stuff of souls. So they have soul forging, which is actually making uh, materials, objects, buildings, whatever, uh, out of the soul stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the rest of the wraiths, I guess there are, there's other materials there too, but one of the major materials is, is, is the soul stuff itself. Uh, one of the funnier uses of this is that there was a major NPC who's known as it was very divisive within the community, and, and frankly, at the, at the point that Wraith the Oblivion was being published, not very popular because he was the exception to all the rules and was overpowered NPC bloat for a lot of the adventures. Okay. And when someone asked what was going on with him and Wraith, since he was already in Vampire and Werewolf and Mage. Uh, I, uh, one of the writers wrote in a, just a sentence in one of the books that said that he was a an act that that he had made it to the setting of Wraith the Oblivion, but he was just an ashtray sitting on the desk. <laughs> That's not bad. That's a lot like uh, turning a god into a gun, I suppose, or a necktie. Necktie, yes. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. Um, hey, I, I guess another thing you might want to well. One of, one of the people who probably comes to the uh, the, the markets of Saturine to, to purchase pure emotions, it's got to be uh, got to be my boy Nicholas Sparks. Like that guy's still churning out novels, right? Um, yes, and I, I don't know how far along, but that might be fer- fairly well uh, milled emotions. Yep, because <laughs> those have been ground down <laughs> to a fine powder. A very fine powder. Um, so. Another thing about Saturine is this place was devastated during the war that the Vizlay fled from. Uh, and there, the the city of Saturine is being rebuilt, but it's focusing on the districts that weren't as decimated as the rest of the place. Um, so the, the problem that they're running into is that the weapons that were used in the war have left behind these things called the cysts of war, which are hate-powered cysts that are making the rebuilding efforts much more difficult. 
Uh, and as I was re- reading through all of this um, and reflecting on the discussion we had about Sandman, uh, hey, we have another parallel here to World War One, where uh, we have a devastated city that isn't going to be healed easily, which is similar to you know a lot of the European landscape that was just destroyed during World War One with the the big guns that they were bringing out uh, for that war uh, and we're seeing the same sort of thing here where we have this scarred and changed and awful landscape that's been blasted to ruin uh, that when you look at it it's it's going to be terrible and when you have the these visley the players coming back to see what Saturine is like now I mean you're going to have a lot of problems for them to deal with uh I mean, I would hope that there would be some sort of emotional impact that they would feel coming back to this place that they used to live in and were familiar with to see it just completely ruined. I'm pretty sure that my first campaign will directly uh, involve moving from the the players partially rebuilt parts of Saturine to confronting some of these more bombed out parts of the city. And, and that's such an interesting hook to me. I'm pretty sure that's what I would want to focus on uh, starting off a game like this. Yeah, it's, it's a good hook. Um, and I do have some notes about it. Uh, but real quickly, before we get into how we might use this for our campaigns, uh, one more thing is the Warden of Indigo is somebody named Quiss, but Quiss has gone missing. Uh, Quiss went missing during the war. And people don't know where Quiss is. They don't know if Quiss is dead. Uh, but it turns out you can still commune with this warden, which is strange. Or maybe someone pretending to be this warden. Yeah, that would be another thing. Um, but, I mean, this this would be another hook that your players might get into, which is, hey, what happened to Quiss? Like, where's Quiss? Why is Quiss still answering but absent? So... Um, yeah, go ahead. And as another parallel to World War One, uh, we have after World War One the so-called Lost Generation. Here we have the Lost Warden. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So how are we going to use this in play? This is a little thing I added. I tried to I tried to make some more notes on uh, you know what we might want to pull from Indigo in order to use in our campaigns because uh, it seems to be something we always talk about, but I've never put together a whole lot of stuff for it. Um, but Indigo, like I said before, this is probably going to be the starting point for most Invisible Sun campaigns. Uh, if you're starting your very first one, I imagine this is this is where you're going to go. Um, so Saturine, uh, and possibly more specifically Fartown, is where your players are going to be hanging out to begin with. Because Fartown is the Saturine district where Visley live. It's, it's their place. Uh, however... Uh, Indigo is this boundless realm with many cities dotting the landscape. It's just that Saturine is the focal point. It's the biggest one. So one thing I was thinking about was taking Saturine and making that your, like probably your focus for a campaign. Uh, and I was thinking along the lines of, uh, Shar in the city of towers from Eberron, which is something I'm very familiar with. Uh, and also Tolis. I'm not f- terribly familiar with that. I just know that, it is a large city with a ton of detail that Monty Cook put together with Mal Havoc. So these, you know, these are pretty good templates for, you know, building up Saturine as 
a setting for a campaign or a large chunk of a campaign because um, there's going to be all sorts of stuff going on in here. Uh, have you done anything with Sharn or Tolis? I, I've read some of the material, more of Sharn uh, than Tolis. Um, but there's a history of these cities. You've got Greyhawk, in the, the name for actually its biggest city, the city of Greyhawk. And okay. a number of cities in Forgotten Realms like Waterdeep and some others that are just huge cities that you could have an entire campaign within the city. And one thing that makes uh, Tolis and Sharn and some of these other examples really useful is that they are... Uh, urban centers, but with that include enough diversity that you could have a, a variety of types of encounters and, and types of stories told within their limits. Mm-hmm. So in, in our case with Saturine, uh, with the bombed out portions of Saturine, it's, it'd be very, I imagine, pretty easy to have some areas that are uh, relatively well developed. And you might have uh, conflict between factions about rebuilding. And this would be interesting because it's not necessarily factions between good and evil then, uh, or someone trying to necessarily dominate Saturine, though you could certainly tell that story as well. Mm-hmm. This could be like uh, well-intentioned, but very uh, well-intentioned groups with different ideas of how you rebuild Saturine. And you could do that within a, a kind of a pure urban setting where it's still relatively safe to walk down the street. And the conflict really arises between these well-intentioned but uh, diverse groups trying to rebuild. Three blocks over, whatever a block means under the Indigo Sun, uh, you might have a bombed out section that looks a lot like a dungeon would mm-hmm. or a wilderness would, except instead of trees, you've got the ruins of a former section, uh, maybe an abandoned em- emotion mine and whatever uh, sort of strange creations would emerge from a cyst that uh, builds up around an old emotion mill, I should say. Uh so uh, mine seems pretty good too. You got to get that yeah, oh, yeah. raw stuff from somewhere. Yeah, maybe both. Um, and so it's diverse enough that you can tell all uh, dungeon sorts of stories. You can tell bug hunt, monster hunt sorts of stories. You can tell political conflict stories. You can tell exploration stories. Uh, and there's, uh, I, I don't think you know, there's even a mention of the pre-human civilization under Saturine. So there's all sorts of stories you could tell just within uh, that city, which is the hallmark of being uh, a location you could set a campaign in. Yeah, and and one of the things I'm really looking forward to reading about is, well, will be the factions that exist within Saturine. I mean, we've got the orders, but those are more Vizlay focused. And Vizlay seem like a, a large player in the setting, but I don't know if they would count as a faction so much. Uh, or so if they're I'm, everyone. I don't think they're everybody because there is a district, which is Fartown, that is specifically Vizlay. So that would seem to indicate there's districts that are not Vizlay. Yes. That, that's where I, that's what I'm going on. And it might be something like in Sigil for Planescape where you have these different factions. And the factions are not varieties of good and evil. Uh, they are different phil- philosophical traditions. Mm-hmm. And yet they come into conflict and part of what players can do is then negotiate through the conflict of these different factions, which requires a lot more thought and planning for campaign building, because it's not as simple as go find the creature, the creatures who are who, who are not like you, destroy them and take their stuff, or defend yourself from the creatures who are not like you so that they don't take your stuff. Uh, instead, it is a question of, okay, you've got uh, one faction that maybe wants to rebuild Saturine as closely as possible to its original vision. 
and another group that says that basically you need to move on and instead create a new vision for Saturine, and thus they want kind of Saturine 2.0. And so you have kind of the historical preservationists versus the uh, the, the re- revisionists, and those two groups would have conflict. They might not necessarily, you know, strut down the street like the the, the jets in. Uh, uh, West Side Story and have actual rumbles, uh, they might have other types of conflict, but that is a conflict. And it'd be an interesting one in, in a domain where the debate over preserving versus uh, innovating is the debate over the, the relative status of the preservation of ideas mm-hmm. versus the innovation and reform of those ideas. Well, I think there's going to be a lot more for us to talk about when it comes to Saturine in the future. Um, so this is, this is our brief overview of Indigo, and I think we should wrap it up here so that we can talk about whatever we've got next. Absolutely. I'd be shocked if we don't get an entire segment or two out of Saturine in the future once we have more information. Well, we nearly got an entire thing about Saturine, even though we were talking about Indigo, so I, I think we'll do it. In Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss one of the recent design diaries about the Invisible Sun RPG. In this segment, we will talk about Design Diary 3 by Monty Cook, titled Visual and Tactile Design. We decided we're going to talk about pretty much all of the design diaries, and they really needed to be upgraded to their own spell. So now we have this specific segment for this type of information called Embrace the Black Cube. Yeah, I'm super excited. New segment. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and we, we basically took Mondi's advice uh, in, in, the, uh, in the design diary. He said that there should be a spell titled Embrace the Black Cube. So we have decided that there is, in fact, a spell called Embrace the Black Cube. And it's the segment in which we discuss those design diaries. So maybe a little recursive, but uh, we'll, we'll do, we're, we're going to enjoy it anyway. You're welcome. <laughs> So in this uh, Design Diary 3, uh, Monty focuses on how his approach to the game has changed, uh, evolved uh, throughout the process, in particular how the notion that Invisible Sun is not like other RPGs because it's not just a book. It is instead a a box, a big black magical box that includes a lot of physical components and how having access to those physical components changes the way he designed games because he doesn't assume you only have a book anymore. Now he can he can assume that if you're playing Visible Sun, you've got the box. And if you've got the box, that means you have the counters, the dice, the uh, the, the testament, which is the uh, the, the little statue of the six-fingered hand. You have the sooth deck. So you have these physical components. And in particular, they, they tend to have more visual cues and there's tactile elements to these components that you can't assume if you're writing for a, a, an RPG that's going to exist primarily as a book that people will buy, buy and store on a shelf. What was your initial reaction to this notion that the visual and tactile nature of the box changes the development of the RPG? Um, I'm not too surprised by that. I mean, they've they've got the Sooth deck. They've got the Testament of Sons, which I'm very curious about. Uh, it is a big statue. And at first it just looked like a, a set piece that you'd set on the middle of your table and it would hold a card 
uh, from the Sooth deck that would remind you of its importance for the session. Um, but then they also made a note that there are uh, secrets built into this Testament of Sons and how that interacts with your characters and your character creation is uh, something that's now going to be part of the design. And that sounds, that sounds cool. Um, though I think it's really just a, it, it seems like it's just a representation of what your Vizlay has as their own Testament, right? Yes. I think it's, it, it represents uh, a personal Testament. I, I initially, when I, when I first saw the picture, I was like, that's kind of cool, but I'm not sure. It seemed kind of hokey to the extent that it was going to be really cool for about five minutes. And then after that, it would just be another piece on the table. But now that they write more, they've written more about the use of the Testament and how the physical object itself is used in the game. Uh, I'm interested to see how it changes the nature of interaction at the table. But I worry that designing for the game, as a, especially for, as a tactile experience, is going to limit what can be done with online play. It's something I, I rely upon online play quite a bit because I find it very difficult to find uh, big groups in my area of the country uh, and given my uh, peculiar travel arrangements and the like. So uh, if it relies too much on having a big chunk of plastic in front of me, uh, that's going to that's make things a little tricky. Uh, but I have a lot of faith in our community's ability to come up with alternative ways to play uh, that will work online, uh, maybe preferably with everyone who's online having access to the, the little fiddly bits and the tactile, tactile elements on their own side. I remember during the Kickstarter that they had said that online play was going to be something that isn't going to be impacted by the physical nature of what you're going to be getting. So I, I, I'm, I have faith in Monty Cook Games' ability to put this together in a way that doing it online is going to be just the same as doing it in person. Like, sure, you might not be able to move the cards around and uh, you might not be able to play with the bits, but I don't know if the physical presence of these items is going to be totally required for you to actually play the game. I mean, if it is, I, it's that's going to be problematic for a lot of people. Yeah, well, they said that online play is not a mode that they're designing this game for. Mm-hmm. That this game is deliberately designed for in-person play. Uh, I I know that the community is very important to them, and that that. Uh, that they have placed a great deal of emphasis on the the accessibility of the game to people in an online space. So I also am confident that this game will work online. It may lose a little something not to be in the same room with everyone staring at the same uh, testament, uh, the same yeah. you know sooth deck. Uh, but I think we're going to find a way to adapt, and that it's going that it will not uh, prevent us from enjoying the game online. But uh, it's interesting that you know, there's we talk about this as a, the, as a piece the testament as a piece of the game uh, product as as coming in the the black cube box itself. But the design mm-hmm. diary also mentions that this represents personal talismans that characters have that develop over time. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm confident. I think it'll be interesting to see how players decide what their talisman will look like. And how their talismans will will develop over time. I don't think everyone's going to going to walk around with a you know uh, I don't know foot tall six fingered hand. Uh, er, people will have different types of talismans, and that just is an interesting uh, 
piece of a character people can adapt to. Yeah, so this thing is going to be a symbol of Vizsla, and it represents the Vizsla, the Vizsla that's carrying it. Um, there's a bit more here about what the six fingers are, but yeah, what you said is that this is just a representation of their testament to Vizsla, who is what a god. Do we have a whole lot of information about Vizsla at this point? The sense is that Vizsla is something. I, I get the sense that she is superior to other other entities that are described as gods uh, yeah. at times, like the, some wardens, for example. Who so are it godlike. Might, yeah, who are godlike. Um, so kind of, you know, the, the, the notion of a god might be pretty fluid uh, in this circumstance. But Vizsla is the source of magic and yes. very important to the actuality. Uh, so we'll, we can go with god. That works. Yeah, god's okay. Um, <laughs> so this is going to be the representation to uh, their symbol of Vizsla. So each player or each character is going to have their own thing that is going to be inspired by this gigantic statue that you're going to get in the box. And that thing should change over time as your character changes and grows. And how does this relate to how characters are changing? Um, not over time, but like the development of characters in Invisible Sun. How is this tied into that now? Well, this is a, a great time for a small digression because one of the little bits of information that snuck out in this design diary is that what were once four character aspects have now been expanded to six character aspects given some sense of, of parity in their importance. So we've talked before about, let's see, foundation, heart, forte, and order. Mm -hmm. uh, did I get those four right? You did. Those are <laughs> uh, now they're talking about six aspects, adding in the character's soul and the character's character arc. I can see the talisman evolving along the character arc. And so as you proceed through either an individual arc or across several arcs, your talisman may change to reflect your position within those arcs. Mm -hmm. Um. The the other thing that uh, they talk about, well, the, the two new ones are soul and character art, arc, yes. which are uh, representations of the past and the future of your character. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that your soul is your past representation and this testament is going to evolve as, you know, you go through your character's arc and into the future. Well, I think that it, the, the foundation was described as the past and the character arc is the future. And soul was 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 one of the previous four, so it might be that soul has taken some of what we what we thought of as foundation, because foundation was a combination mm -hmm. of two things. It was a combination of the background of the character and how the character was connected to various elements of their community. Right. So it might be that soul is taking part of what background used to be. And that background is now focusing almost entirely on the history of the character, which is why it's their past. Mm -hmm. We don't know much more about soul, so it may be something entirely new. Uh, or it may be taking part of the non-historical elements that were foundation, such as the connectedness of the character. But we're just We guessing. also don't know too much about character arc, though... Yeah. It sounds a lot like this is your character's advancement through the 
leveling system, the experience system. So it, I'm not I'm not sure if this is a new concept or if this is just something that existed that they are putting more of a definition around. Based on what I've heard them say about character arcs, um, I have a great deal of faith that this is going to be something relatively new, that it is not going to be uh, the you know, replaceable with a tier system where where uh, Invisible Sun characters say, I'm in character arc three, rather than saying, I'm in tier three. Mm-hmm. Instead, I think character arcs are going to, first of all, be varied so that you can ha- there's multiple arcs you, one could undertake. And that being at different stages in these character arcs will mean different things for your character, for their abilities, for their interests, uh, for their motivations. Uh, but the, the, it might not just be a matter of increasing power over time, but instead there may be certain character arcs where you're, you become, you improve in some skills or some of those skills atrophy, uh, depending upon where you are in, in the arc itself. And you may even have different characters in the party at different points in different character arcs at the same time. So I, I, I the, the, some of what they've mentioned just makes me think it's going to be quite a bit more complex and individualized than a level system or a tier system, which allows for you know, comparison of a third tier Numenera character is about as powerful as another third tier character. I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to be as easy to say, oh, well, I've completed two arcs, therefore I am just as powerful as another character who's completed two arcs. Yeah, uh, I'm not too sure what to think about the character arc at, yet at this point. Uh, it seems like that might be something that would be more player defined like mm-hmm. here's here's what my where my character is at and here's where i think they might be going but i don't know if that sort of definition holds up under you know play cuz you know whenever i have a character at the start of a campaign my character is you know sort of a an amorphous cloud that gets a bit more focused as we play through a game and it's not it's not a journey that I can define at the start of a campaign, and then stick to because when I have a, I've seen uh, plans form around characters and where they're supposed to go, and I've seen those plans just fall apart because it just doesn't hold up once you actually put a character into a story and into a world that interacts with other, you know, players' characters and and NPCs and things like that. And, and this is part of what excites me about the notion of character arcs is that uh, it separates the progression of the character through uh, her, you know, her narrative uh, from a leveling system. And you know, at one extreme, we might imagine Pathfinder characters notoriously. Uh, so a player might say, "Well, I plan to do this with my Pathfinder character, so that means I know the first fifteen level of all of my advancements. Like for the, mm-hmm. I know what I'm taking for all of my choices for the first fifteen levels. And you have to do that so that I can make sure that at level sixteen I can get this feat, which is going to really make bring my character together. Uh, and that's you know that." I don't think that's what they're going for with the character arc system. In fact, I think they're going kind of in the opposite direction. Yeah, that doesn't feel like a character arc to me. That feels more like mechanics defining what you can do in a system. 
But I think it is the arc built into the what some call the zero to hero character arc in uh, you know De- uh, Dungeons and Dragons and, and related games that almost mm-hmm. and some you might say all the characters have the same arc. They all start out as relatively wimpy and become less wimpy over time until they're really really good at what they do and then are the best at what they do and re- you, then you retire the character. That that's that is their character arc, which is a totally valid story to tell. Um, but the you the direct use of the language of character arcs as a substitute for a leveling system, and I think at times they've even said this is basically a substitute, indicates to me that they want to allow for very different types of stories to be told. Mm-hmm. And that for even for different characters in the same game to have different stories, the, the potential for interacting stories then becomes really interesting. That me, Maybe one story is, uh, you know, your character arc is you will become the chosen of Vizsla and you're going to, you know, uh, rebuild Saturine. Okay, that's that's a that, that is a character arc, and that sounds that could be a pretty cool character arc. And that's not all that different from a traditional leveling character arc. You're getting more and more powerful, having more of an influence on the world around you until you do something of epic uh, significance, like rebuilding Saturine. Mm-hmm. Others might have story uh, character arcs that are about I need to forgive my uh my friend for this betrayal or something along those lines uh and that's not the sort of character arc you might see in a D game but it's an in- it's an interesting character arc and if you get th- you know four or five of those different arcs going on uh a let's say a revenge arc a renewal arc uh and a um uh, a forgiveness arc how those arcs all interact with each other could lead to some interesting interesting storytelling within the party now and this is really out there but maybe the a, a, a interesting comparison to play with since we're just speculating would mm-hmm. be with the uh, i don't remember what they're called in uh gods the fall but there's different prophecies i think they are uh yeah i think they're just prophecies yeah, and imagine a party of people with different prophecies. And so one of the characters' prophecy is about, you know, they're going to fulfill the prophecy of ruin that's going to destroy the world. And another is going to fulfill the prophecy of renewal. Uh, those are pretty hard to reconcile because they're opposites. Um, others might be the, you know, the prophecy of, of revelation. You're going to uh, help people understand the nature of the universe and their place in it. But if each of the players has their own prophecy that they're all trying to fulfill uh, mm-hmm. and and are fulfilling, then as those prophecies become reconciled, that might be, it, it's something parallel to this interesting notion of varying character arcs for each character within a party. But again, I'm trying to read tea leaves from several different games uh, and vague statements uh, uh, on on Twitter on Twitter or blog posts uh, to to figure out what sort of radical reinvention of of the role playing genre we're going to experience. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of this, uh, design diary was about how as Monty's going through and putting all this stuff together, he's realizing that this is not quite the same as other stuff that he's put together because of the physical nature of, you know, the box that is going to be sent out. Yeah. I think one way to, to sum up the design diary is that uh, as imaginative as, uh, Monty Cook is, 
that he still was uh, limited in some ways to preconceptions of what RPGs are and how you develop them. But th this experience has allowed him more freedom to uh, think of games in new ways and to think of the role-playing game experience in new ways, uh, especially as regards to visual and tactile design. And so uh, he knew Invisible Sun was going to be different and he wanted it to be something new, but it's going mm -hmm. to be even more different uh, and even newer than he may have expected from the beginning. So I'm excited to see how all that plays out as we start to see uh, playtest material and the game itself come out later in the year. I can actually say later this year now. Yeah, this year. It's exciting. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive-Thru RPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Dr. Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Uh, and if you if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find our show. Uh, or else, tell a friend about the show, which is another great way to get the word out and get more people listening. Mm -hmm.